In this episode, as we complete our five-part walkthrough of both the glory and the meaning of the ascension of Jesus, I want to juxtapose two scenes for you. Scene one. It is early, early morning on the Friday of that Passover week. The sun is just rising over the eastern horizon. The air is bitingly cool. At the high priest's palace, located just adjacent to Herod's temple, the members of the Sanhedrin are reassembling after their late night of deliberating. These chief priests, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, were only able to steal a few hours of sleep after the difficulties of the trial of this false teacher, Jesus. They are now attired in fresh robes, having breakfasted at their homes, and they are returning to the Sanhedrin's chamber. They each take up their customary places, fanned out from the high priest's throne. The room is almost eerily lit by only a handful of lamps. The high priest, nodding his head toward the guards, invites them to go and fetch the prisoner, to bring him in for their final judgment. Everyone waits uneasily. The seconds feel long for some reason. Finally, the door is opened and the guard returns into the room, circled around the prisoner whose hands are bound in front. His cloak is somewhat askew. Both it and his tunic reveal dried spots of blood. His face is puffy, bruised, bleeding in places. It is obvious that the guards have had their fun with him in the night. The high priest nods his head. If you are the Messiah, he says to Jesus, then tell us now. Jesus meets the high priest's gaze directly, steadily. If I tell you so, you will not believe me. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. But from now on, you will find the Son of Man seated at the right hand of Almighty God. The high priest stands to his feet. All watch him. So you are the Son of God then? Jesus continues gazing steadily into the high priest's eyes. You said it, he says. I am. So that's scene one. Do you have it in your mind? Well, here's scene two. Forty-three days later, having been condemned by that Sanhedrin, having been brutalized by and then sentenced to death by the governor, having been taken up to Golgotha, having been crucified and dying, having ended the curse of sin, having battled against death, having conquered death by rising from the dead, having 
revealed himself, the same wonderful Jesus alive to his friends, having been in and out of their line of sight for 40 days, having gone up with them to picnic in a garden on the Mount of Olives, having suddenly levitated skyward from the ground in their midst, having passed up through the clouds, having arrived upon the threshold of the throne room of heaven. Friends, we look over his shoulder as the great doors open inward. The seemingly infinite faces of the angels and saints facing toward him, awaiting his crossing of that threshold. Their song erupting as he walks in. His processional toward the front of the infinite throne room, the song echoing outward, upward, Godward. The moment when he arrives unto the Father. The Father's good pleasure in his Son. The stepping upward, up the golden set of stairs unto the dais, and and arriving at the Father's side. The turning of the Son of God, the one who was I am incarnate, and the taking of his seat at the right hand of the Father. Uh, the, The look in his eyes as he finishes once for all time the entire work of winning back the entirety of humankind. He is seated then upon that throne. He is seated now upon that throne. My question for our hearts in this episode, what are the implications of his ascended place? What is this meant to mean for you and for the whole church? Well, I answer myself, the clearest set of statements as to the meaning of his ascended place is really given by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 16. So I want to read that to you and offer just a few clarifying comments as we go. Paul writes, You all belong to one body, of which there is one spirit, just as you all experienced one calling to one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of us all, who is the one over all, the one working through all, and the one living in all. Or in other words, Jesus, alive in you, the one reaching out to all, is the Lord over all. That is who is on the throne. He is the son of the one father. He is God. He has given you and I entry and access by giving us himself. The only way to do this, this thing we call Christianity, is to personally hope in him, uh, called by him, following his own spirit, and thus, individually and then collectively, become part of his body. Essentially, become him. Paul goes on. Naturally, there are different gifts and functions. Individually, grace is given to us in different ways out of the rich diversity of Christ's giving. As the scripture says, 
When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Note the implication here. To say that Christ ascended means that he must previously have descended. That is from the height of heaven to the depth of this world. The one who made this descent is identically the same person as he who has now ascended high above the very heavens, that the whole universe from lowest to highest might know his presence. Simply put, Jesus came down that we might come up with him. He descended, incarnated, that we might also ascend. And friends, our present-day earthly experience of our heavenly destiny are those spiritual gifts he's bestowed upon us and expects us to use. Paul again. His gifts to men were varied. Some he made his messengers, some prophets, some preachers of the gospel. To some he gave the power to guide and teach his people. His gifts were made that Christians might be properly equipped for their service, that the whole body might be built up until the time comes when, in the unity of the common faith and common knowledge of the Son of God, we arrive at real maturity, that measure of development which is meant by the fullness of Christ. Friends, picture it this way. Jesus on that glorious celestial throne is inviting you forward to bestow upon you a specific spiritual way of life. Imagine an earthly king knighting a trusted friend. That's the way he's looking at us, at you, and then calling you either an apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, or teacher. And what is the purpose of his calling you to this calling? That the body might be equipped for broader service, built up in its power, strengthened in its vital union with the Godhead. Even more simply, that all may know of Jesus and grow in him. Is that what our spiritual lives are constantly doing? Paul again. We are not meant to remain as children at the mercy of every chance win of teaching and the jockeying of men who are expert in the crafty presentation of lies. No, we are meant to hold firmly to the truth in love and to grow up in every way into Christ the head. For it is from the head that the whole body as a harmonious structure knit together by the joints with which it is provided, grows by the proper functioning of individual parts to its full maturity in love. So as we close out our fifth and final part of our thoughts on the ascension, here's my final thought for you, friends. It is only as we each, as you individually, Abide in Jesus, the head, that the body becomes and remains the body. All the follies and foolishnesses of the entirety of so-called church history is the idea that we can do anything 
outside of alignment with Jesus himself. That's what he came to end. That was the nature of religion. Instead, each of us gazing upon the one we've come to know, who has called us to himself, then saved us and filled us with himself, we will each be walking with and again, embodying the one who is the head. My friends, it is only to abide in Jesus, the alive and ascended one. It is to let him live his life all over again in and through you. As always, thanks for listening.